Lecture 19, Richard the Lionheart and the Third Crusade. Welcome back. In our last lecture, we took one of our chronological detours. We talked about the rise of courtly love and stories about King Arthur. And we talked about how important the Angevin family was, especially the women of the Angevin family, in patronizing this literature and making it popular all over Europe. Today we're going to get back to our narrative, and we're going to look at the career of the English king who I think most resembles one of the heroes of this courtly literature, and I'm talking about Richard the Lionheart. Now, we've already discussed a lot of royal nicknames in this course, and most of them have not been exactly flattering. We had Athelred Bad Counsel, we had Robert Shortpants, even William the Bastard, but Richard the Lionheart, that's a pretty good one. Let's see if Richard deserves his epithet. Now, the first thing I want to say about Richard is that he's very much the son of his parents, his two very quarrelsome parents. He got two main traits from his father, Henry II, his phenomenal energy, and his sharp temper. Richard's anger was legendary just as his father's was. You'll remember Henry II chewing on the rushes. Richard also seemed to have the ability to be in two places at once. He moved that fast. Now, from his mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, Richard got his love of music and poetry and his love for Aquitaine. It was always his favorite part of the Angevin dominions, and he spent much more time there than he did in England, certainly in part because Aquitaine was far more troublesome than England, but also in part because he simply preferred it. This fact is very important about Richard's reign, and it's something that has been very controversial among historians of England over the years. Richard ruled for 10 years, from 1189 to 1199, and of those 10 years, he spent less than six months in England. Now, in the past, a lot of English historians have basically been insulted by this. They've condemned Richard for neglecting his duties as King of England. They blame him for essentially treating England as a cash cow. He would exploit England to finance other projects that seemed more important to him, like the Crusade, which we'll get to, or uh, perhaps shoring up his grip on his French lands. Other historians have pointed out that England seems to have come through this supposed neglect pretty well. Uh, the very need to extract a lot of revenues from England led Richard to put in some very able administrators who did a lot to regularize the functions of government while he was out of the country. And they argue that it's not even strictly true that Richard wasn't interested in England. He issued a lot of charters about England even when he was overseas. He clearly kept very up-to-date on English affairs. Now, recently, the historical tide has been turning against Richard a little bit again, and now some scholars are saying that Richard simply took too much money out of England. He set up a financial crisis that was going to break during the reign of his successor, his brother John. Um, the economic arguments involved here are very complicated, and I don't think the verdict is clear on that. So in this lecture, I'm going to look much less at what modern historians think about Richard than about what his contemporaries thought. Mostly, 
they adored him. The biggest reason for this is that Richard was a born soldier, and it's certainly still the case in this period that kings are supposed to be successful soldiers. They really have to be if they're going to keep control of their lands. The loyalty of their nobles is simply too precarious for them to be able to relax for very long, and they have very powerful rivals. This is the part of the job of king that I think Richard liked the most, and he attracted the best soldiers because men thought he was a great fighter. He liked hanging out with his fellow soldiers, and they loved him. They're the ones who called him Lionheart. And Richard wasn't a good soldier simply because he was brave or good at strategy. He was also good at logistics, and this was a winning combination. It took a tremendous amount of planning to move an army around, even in a very small area. And Richard took an army to the Holy Land, as we'll see. He was good at making sure that the supplies arrived on time. And that's going to make soldiers happy also. Now, there are a couple of myths about Richard that I want to get rid of right at the start. The first is the notion that he was a homosexual. Nobody thought this in the Middle Ages. It was a modern historian writing in the 20th century who first came up with this notion, and it's based really on misinterpretations of contemporary sources. There's just no basis for it. Richard did get married for purely strategic reasons. This was uh, common in this period. He married a woman named Berengaria of Navarre, a Spanish princess. They spent very little time together, and they produced no children. He did have one acknowledged illegitimate son, and that is basically all that we know about Richard's private life. And I have to say, after the Angevin dysfunctions of the past uh, a couple of lectures, I'm happy to leave it there. Now, the second myth to dispose of is that Richard's reign is the setting for the activities of Robin Hood, the famous outlaw. Now, we're going to get to Robin Hood later in the course, the real Robin Hood, if there is such a thing, but the version of Robin Hood that most people are familiar with now from movies and books puts Robin Hood in Richard's time. Now, Robin Hood is supposedly trying to help protect England from the evil Prince John while Richard is away on crusade. And most of the Robin Hood stories end with uh, Richard returning from crusade, punishing King John, rewarding Robin Hood, and then order is restored. This is not true at all. Nobody even thought of Robin Hood living in the 12th century until many centuries later, a Scottish author named John Major pushed the Robin Hood stories back in time. Really, they come from about the 15th century. Uh, he pushed them back in time to Richard's period simply because he wanted Richard in the story. He's such a great character. So no Robin Hood for Richard. But I don't think we need Robin Hood. Richard's reign is exciting enough without him. Now, the reason, of course, is that Richard's reign is dominated, at least for the first half, by the Third Crusade. And that's the occasion for adventures that you could hardly make up if you tried. We talked about crusading a little bit when we talked about Robert Curthose going off on crusade and leaving Normandy uh, in mortgage to his brother, William Rufus. That was the first crusade in the 1090s. We also mentioned crusading again when we talked about Eleanor of Aquitaine, how she made a spectacle of herself when she went on crusade with her first husband, King Louis of France. 
That was the Second Crusade in the 1140s. We're coming up now to the Third Crusade, and I just want to explain why we keep having more and more of these Crusades. The First Crusade had been spectacularly successful. The Crusading armies had captured Jerusalem, and they had set up four small territories in the Holy Land that were ruled by Christians. So far, so good, but of course it was hard to defend these territories. They were so far away from supplies and reinforcements. And the Second Crusade, the one Eleanor of Aquitaine went on, that was fought because one of these little territories, the County of Edessa, had been recaptured by Muslim armies. And the Second Crusade was unsuccessful. For the next several decades, the remaining Crusader states are hanging on in the face of odds that are getting ever longer. And then, in 1187, disaster struck. The Egyptian leader Saladin recaptured Jerusalem, the holy city, the main prize of the Crusaders. Christian Europe was dismayed, and many leaders across Europe immediately took the cross. That is, they declared their intention to go on crusade. The expression, to take the cross, comes from the large red crosses that the first crusaders had sewn onto their tunics to show that they were going on crusade. And the word crusade comes from the word for cross. Now, at the time of the fall of Jerusalem in 1187, Richard wanted very much to go on crusade. This was the ultimate test for a soldier. But he was still very much involved in the struggle with his father, King Henry, so even the crusade had to wait. But as soon as Henry died and Richard became king, the crusade was the first thing Richard wanted to do. Now, there's actually a pretty interesting family connection between Richard and the Holy Land. When the Christian kingdom of Jerusalem was set up at the time of the First Crusade, it was ruled briefly by a Flemish dynasty. But the male line of that dynasty failed rather quickly, and so the heiress of the kingdom, a princess named Melisende, married, and I, I know this is complicated, so just bear with me for a second, she married the father of Count Geoffrey of Anjou. This is Count Geoffrey, who is the husband of Empress Matilda and the father of Henry II. So Henry II's grandfather, Richard's great-grandfather, was actually King of Jerusalem. Now, in the early 1180s, when the direct line of the Jerusalem dynasty failed again, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem needed a new king, and they actually sent a delegation all the way to England, all the way to Henry II, offering him the throne of Jerusalem, the same throne his grandfather had held. He actually had a hereditary right to it. Now, Henry thought it over, but he turned it down. I think he rather wisely thought that with England and Ireland and half of France already on his plate, maybe he had enough to worry about. But Richard was a different story. We don't know what was in Richard's mind when he went off on crusade to try to recapture Jerusalem. Did he perhaps think he might end up as king? If he got the city back, wouldn't he be a logical choice? He has this impeccable Angevin pedigree. Now, there was another king by then, 
When King Henry had turned them down, the leaders of the Kingdom of Jerusalem had picked another guy named Guy of Lusignan. But who knows what could have happened? I bet Richard wasn't ruling anything out. But before Richard could leave on crusade, he had to get crowned King of England. And the coronation was perhaps not the best way to start off his reign. There were some problems. We've seen the coronation sometimes went wrong. There was the misunderstanding at William the Conqueror's coronation that caused his soldiers to burn down some houses. Then the fault line had been between uh, the French followers of the king and his new English subjects. They couldn't understand each other. The problem at Richard's coronation was different. It exposed a different fault line in English society. This one lay between the king's Christian subjects and his Jewish subjects. The coronation took place on September 3rd, 1189. Now, after the coronation ceremony in Westminster Abbey, the king held a banquet with his most important subjects. This was a royal tradition. And at the banquet, a delegation appeared. It was composed of the leading members of the London Jewish community. They had brought gifts to congratulate the king on his coronation. Clearly, they're trying to uh, curry favor with the new monarch, and that's certainly not a bad idea. But the guards at the banquet barred them from entry. Things apparently then got out of hand, and a riot broke out, and it spread to other sectors of the city, and Jewish businesses and homes were attacked, and a number of lives were lost. And these anti-Jewish outbreaks spread over the next several months. They spread to other English towns that had substantial Jewish communities. The riots were especially bad in Lincoln and in York. At York, in March in 1190, around 150 Jews fled from a mob and took refuge in the royal castle. And when it looked as if there was no hope that they'd be rescued, most of the men inside first killed their wives and children and then committed suicide. Now, a few of them relied on the promises of the mob outside that if they came out and accepted Christian baptism, they would be spared. So these few Jews came out of the castle and were immediately massacred. Now, unfortunately, these kinds of outbreaks often did go along with periods of crusading fervor. The idea is, okay, we're going to go kill enemies of Christ, but we've got them right here. Let's kill the ones who are right in front of us. And the same sorts of pogroms had happened during the First and Second Crusades. Now, we have to go back and think about the history of the Jewish community in England. The first known Jews to live in England came over during William the Conqueror's reign. And over the course of the 12th century, the number of Jews in England had grown substantially. We're still talking about relatively small numbers, and maybe a few thousand, but they're highly visible because many of them specialize in money lending. And quite a few substantial citizens owe these Jews a lot of money. Now, some Jews did grow extremely wealthy. This was never the case for all of them, but there were some who were very, very wealthy. For example, Aaron of Lincoln. Aaron of Lincoln died in 1186, and he left behind such a large fortune and such a complicated network of debts that were owed to his estate that the English exchequer had to set up a separate department. It was called the Exchequer of Aaron of Lincoln, 
and it met separately for the next 15 years to deal with the ramifications of his estate. Now, the downside of this kind of success is that it bred resentment. And the terrible attack at York in 1190 was partly directed at the surviving business associates of Aaron of Lincoln. So this is a rather ugly aspect of English life on the eve of the Third Crusade. And, and in fact, King Richard tried to stop the riots. I don't think it's so much that he personally cared a lot about the fate of the Jews, but English kings were able to tax the Jews at high rates. And so I think Richard is very unhappy at the thought that this financial resource of his is being damaged. But his efforts were ineffectual. The outbreaks simply continued until they died down of their own accord. It was a fact of life for Jews in medieval Europe that they might live many decades entirely unmolested, but then something would happen and it would touch off a mob reaction. It was a very uncertain existence. But even as these outbreaks against Jews continued, King Richard left England only two months after his coronation. He spent the next year and a half in his French lands preparing to go on crusade. I mentioned earlier that Richard is very good at logistics. He's a very good planner. And you have to be to go on crusade. First, you have to raise an enormous sum of money. And a lot of it came from England, which is certainly the richest of Richard's dominions. Now, nobody liked paying taxes in the Middle Ages. I don't think people ever like paying taxes, but they really don't like it in the 12th century. So I think it's really a tribute to the popularity of the crusading ideal that people actually paid up rather readily. I also think they felt as if Richard was likely to make a success of it. It was going to be a good investment. So after a lot of planning, Richard is ready to go. But he's not going alone. King Philip of France is planning to go too. And Richard's experience of the crusade is largely shaped by the very tense relationship between these two men. Now in the film, A Lion in Winter, Richard and Philip are depicted as ex-lovers, embittered ex-lovers. I don't think we need that kind of complication to explain why these men are rivals. All you have to do is look at the map of France. Richard has a lot of France. Philip wants more of it for himself. Both men are very talented and very aggressive. Now, of course, Richard is remembered as one of England's greatest kings. Philip is remembered as one of France's greatest kings. And in fact, he later got the nickname Philip Augustus. So you set that beside Richard the Lionheart. There's no mystery why these two men are not going to get along. They do have a very complicated history, though. When King Henry was still alive, Philip of France had been quite happy to help Richard make life difficult for his father. But it was all business, nothing personal. As soon as Henry died and Richard became King of England, Philip automatically became Richard's enemy. Now, officially, they're going off on crusade as two Christian kings trying to liberate Jerusalem. Unofficially, they wanted to keep an eye on each other. Now, the two kings took different routes to the Holy Land, partly by land, partly by sea. They did bump into each other at various points along the way, and whenever they did, they would find something to get irritated with each other about. But they finally arrived in the east in 1191, and they faced a volatile situation. The town of Acre, which is in the north of present-day Israel, 
was then in Muslim hands. And the king of Jerusalem, he's still called that, even though Jerusalem has fallen to the Muslims, is a guy named Guy of Lusignan. As I said earlier, he had taken the throne when Henry II of England had said, thanks, but no thanks. So Guy of Lusignan is besieging the town of Acre. But Guy was being besieged in turn by a Muslim relieving force, and he needed to be rescued. And here's where the different strengths of the two European kings come into play. King Philip of France arrives at Acre in April of 1191. Richard arrives in July, and he comes with more money than Philip had, and this money pays for better siege engines than Philip could provide. And on July 12th, the city surrenders. And the capture of Acre would turn out to be the greatest success of the Third Crusade, and it's largely due to Richard's generalship and to his logistical abilities. But an incident took place right after the victory, and it proved to have very dire consequences for Richard. The banners of the victorious crusaders were put on display outside the city walls. Richard noticed that the banner of Duke Leopold of Austria was flying next to his own. And apparently, Richard thought Duke Leopold wasn't sufficiently important for his banner to be flying next to the banner of the King of England. So Richard ordered that banner removed. And it was found later in a ditch. Now, the Duke demanded that Richard apologize for this insult, but Richard refused. And the Duke left the crusade in a rage and returned to Europe. And this was going to come back to haunt Richard later on. And Duke Leopold was not the only one who was leaving. At the end of July, King Philip also left to return to France. He had gotten word that an important French nobleman had died, and Philip had a claim to the inheritance, and he wanted to be on the spot to make sure that he could make good on this claim. I also think he could see that the crusade had probably accomplished as much as it was going to, and he probably didn't care very much for standing in Richard's shadow. And this left Richard to confront Saladin alone. Now, Richard and Saladin had made a treaty after the fall of Acre, according to which Saladin would pay a ransom for some of the prisoners that Richard had taken in the city. Saladin had trouble raising the money, and Richard became convinced that the delay was a deliberate ploy to keep Richard pinned down at Acre. This probably isn't true. Still, Richard believed it. And in retaliation, he had the 3,000 Muslim prisoners massacred in cold blood. It took a very long time for them all to die. Remember, in this period, you have to kill people one at a time. And this is one of the big stains on Richard's character. Most people agree on that. And it is still remembered in that part of the world. But the massacre did at least free Richard up to move towards Jerusalem. He headed first for the coast, and then he marched south. And all along the way, Saladin's forces are harassing him. And finally, the two leaders confront each other in person at Arsuf. But Richard beats Saladin decisively. He uses the famous Norman heavy cavalry charge. But it's simply too hard to make permanent headway against Saladin. Saladin has this light, maneuverable army that's perfectly suited to the conditions in the Middle East. 
Richard gets as far as the walls of Jerusalem, but then he has to fall back to a more secure position. By the following fall, Richard is forced to leave the Holy Land. He gets word that King Philip is threatening the borders of Normandy. So Richard and Saladin make a three-year truce that gives Christian pilgrims the right to enter Jerusalem peacefully. So that's something. Acre is also kept in Christian hands. That was a lasting accomplishment for Richard, and Acre is, in fact, the last of the Crusader lands that are recaptured by Muslim forces, exactly 100 years after Richard's victory there. So it's not all Richard had hoped for, but on the whole, Richard had a pretty glorious record to boast of. But now he has to get home. He sends most of his army back to Europe by sea, but he has a quicker path in mind. He's very eager to get home to confront Philip, so he tries to devise a route home that is going to allow him to avoid Philip's lands and also those of the German ruler, Emperor Henry VI. The German emperor was the sworn enemy of Richard's brother-in-law, the Duke of Saxony, so Richard can't fall into his hands either. Now, this need for speed and secrecy led to an incredible series of events. As I said earlier, it almost seems like fiction. Richard ends up traveling incognito with a small retinue. And one day, he's in a small village outside Vienna in Austria, and he's down to one traveling companion, just a young boy who's uh, acting as his servant. He sends the boy out to get some food in the local marketplace, but the boy is recognized, and under the threat of torture, he reveals the dwelling of the king. Richard is arrested and taken to the Duke of Austria. This is, of course, the same Duke Leopold who Richard had insulted all that time earlier after the fall of Acre. Duke Leopold is the vassal of Emperor Henry VI of Germany, who was Richard's enemy. And so, Duke Leopold, rather gleefully, sells Richard to his master, the emperor, and the emperor imprisons Richard in the castle of Dernstein and the emperor demands an enormous ransom, 150,000 marks. And now the bidding begins, because King Philip of France starts negotiating with the emperor about buying Richard. He has a vested interest in getting hold of Richard. But he was trying to get a better price than 150,000 marks. He's actually trying to get a bargain. Now, Richard's men in England and his other dominions are horrified at the thought that the king might fall into the hands of King Philip. So they swallow hard, and they raise the money. And the taxes required for this were enormous, but people paid. And there's a further humiliation. In order to obtain his release, Richard has to surrender England to the emperor and receive it back as an imperial fief. And Technically, this makes Richard the vassal of the emperor. Now, in reality, this doesn't mean very much. There's not really any way for the emperor to impose his authority on England. But it doesn't look good, certainly, and it seems as if this part of the agreement may have been hushed up. It, it never really got about in England that this uh, fief arrangement had taken place. And so after just over a year in captivity, Richard is finally free. Now, there are a couple of points I want to make about Richard's captivity. 
And the first is another little bit of myth-busting. There's a wonderful story told about Richard's imprisonment, and it plays on Richard's very well-deserved reputation as a literary patron, a lover of music. Uh, supposedly, nobody knew where Richard was being held. And so his faithful minstrel Blondel traveled all through Germany and Outside every castle, he would sing the first lines of a song that he and Richard had written together, hoping for a reply. And finally, when Blondel got to the castle of Dürnstein, uh, he sang a few lines, and then he heard the refrain coming back from inside the castle. And he knew that Richard was inside. It's a lovely story, but unfortunately, it's not true. There's no evidence to back it up, and in fact, Everybody knew where Richard was being held. He's the most famous prisoner in Europe. So the story is romantic, but fictional. But what is true about Richard's captivity is what it tells us about England. England is able to ransom Richard, and it's largely English money that does this, not money from the French land. England is able to do this because England is wealthy and well-run. I said at the beginning of the lecture that Richard doesn't spend any time in England very much, but he's a good logistics man. He knows how to hire the right people. He puts in place a series of very capable administrators. His first chancellor is the Bishop of Ely, a man named William Longchamp. He was very talented, but very unpopular. And interestingly, one reason seems to have been the fact that he was born in Normandy. By the late 12th century, English and Norman had merged in England to the point that Everyone could be hostile to a Norman and see him as a foreigner. In fact, when Longchamp was forced into exile, he had to travel in disguise. According to one account, he was disguised as a prostitute. And the thing that gave him away was the fact that he knew no English. And that tells us that by that point, people, even of Norman descent, are expected to know English, even if they speak French when they want to seem important. Anyway, Longchamp later did Richard excellent service. He was the one who helped to negotiate the ransom. Uh, Richard's other important administrator was a less controversial man, uh, Hubert Walter, the Archbishop of Canterbury, as well as Chancellor. He's not a very impressive scholar. We have some very funny stories about how bad his Latin was, for example. But he was very good at running England when Richard wasn't there. Still, Richard was king, and these servants of his are successful because they have his confidence. And we have lots of evidence that he does keep an eye on things in England, even from afar. He has to have been the person, for example, behind the most important financial innovation of the period, which was the imposition of royal customs duties. Before this, you hadn't had to pay import duties on foreign goods, but now you do. Merchants hated this new tax, but they had to pay it and the customs became a hugely important part of royal revenue from this point on. So Richard is a great soldier, but he's no slouch as an administrator either. Now, so far I've accounted for the events of Richard's reign through the crusade and down to his release from captivity in 1194. What happens in the last five years? Mostly he's in Normandy, where he's fighting a more or less constant war with King Philip, or he's campaigning in Aquitaine, he's trying to shore up his position there. He was in Aquitaine in the spring of 1199. He was uh, confronting the Viscount of Limoges, who had defied him. And he was besieging the castle of Chalou-Chabrol when he was hit by a chance arrow from one of the soldiers in the castle. The wound festered, and shortly thereafter, King Richard died. He left behind a brilliant reputation, but unfortunately, no direct heir. 
England was faced with another disputed succession. And we'll find out what happened then in our next lecture.